This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and Yukon Health Orthopedic and Sports Medicine. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor-patient relationship. You are encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alessi on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Welcome to Healthy Rounds, the show that provides you with up-to-date medical information and answers all of your health questions. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and it's great to be with you live this Saturday morning for our 87th consecutive program dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic. And today we're going to chat a little bit more about COVID-19, some of the updates going on and new information. We're also going to talk about gun violence in America, because that seems to be an epidemic now affecting the public health of all of us here in the United States. Uh, And my guest today is going to be Dr. Trang Lai. Dr. Lai, this is is a show I've really been looking forward to. And I can tell you why, because I think it epitomizes the beauty of this program from the standpoint of it being organic or granular. Those are key words here. So a listener of ours who I bumped into at Yard Goat Stadium named Barry G. Barry said, I wish you would do a show on the different devices used for managing diabetes. Last week, I bumped into a friend, and we were catching up. And I asked, well, what are you doing these days? And he said, oh, I work for Insulate Corporation. And we make delivery systems for insulin. And he was able to connect me with Dr. Lai. And Dr. Lai... You're going to love her as a guest. I've spoken to her during the week. Uh, She is the chief medical officer and senior vice president of Insulate Corporation. She's a pediatric endocrinologist. So she has spent her life working with children with diabetes, but developed an interest, and her research has always been in the delivery of insulin and management of diabetes. So Um, If you have diabetes or you have someone or you know of someone, uh, it's going to be a fascinating interview in the second half of our program. Tonight, I'm going to be at the Mohegan Sun for Reality Fighting. Uh, This is kind of a local group um, that put on a show twice a year, I guess, at Mohegan Sun in the arena. I did the physicals last night, and it's interesting because many of the fighters involved in reality fighting are amateur that means they have other jobs and many are local Um, actually almost all of them are either from connecticut or massachusetts or rhode island and it was interesting because they come from so many different walks of life Uh, i always ask well what do you do for a living and uh, we have firefighters uh, we have uh, postal workers who uh, deliver every day Uh, We have people who work in warehouses, and it's interesting that they have kind of changed. They've reinvented themselves to develop a healthier lifestyle and engage in this uh, mixed martial arts sport. Uh, So it'll be interesting um, to see that, and if you're at the event, uh, please come down and say hello. Um, I'll be the one wearing a mask. Uh, So... uh, (laughs) Uh, which is becoming more and more rare these days. Uh, 
so let's get into it. Let's talk a little bit about COVID-19 and, and some of the updates. Because here in Connecticut, we're now at a positivity rate of 8.81%. And that's woefully underestimated. Because it doesn't take into account people who have not tested or people who have tested at home. And we believe that that underestimates by about a third. In hospitalizations, uh, we have 282 hospitalizations this week. When you look at the people who are hospitalized, though, that 282, 77% of those were not vaccinated. That means they never got any vaccination for COVID-19. And the U.S. death rate continues to climb. We're at 1,000 we're at a million nine thousand three hundred and twenty six dead Americans as a result of COVID. We're now experiencing one hundred and ten thousand new cases a day. Let me frame that for you, because. The experts said it will become endemic and manageable when we can get it to five thousand cases a day. And yet that one hundred and ten thousand number of cases keeps going up and. We're at 4,100 hospitalizations a day. That's higher than where we were last May. So May 2021, it was significantly lower. So clearly from the standpoint of infection and hospitalization, we're moving in the wrong direction. So you might say, why are people not wearing a mask? Why do we not have mandates? Why are we not clamping down? And I guess... What it's really come down to are two choices that we're leaving it up to people to make. The first is, do I want to avoid infection? Meaning, I don't want to get this virus. I'm going to do everything I have to. I'm going to isolate. I'm going to mask. Okay, I'm, I'm going to do my best not to get infected. The second decision is, I just want to avoid being hospitalized, and potentially dying. So those are the two decisions. When we talk about those decisions, right, so avoid infection, isolate, keep away, wear a mask, you know, socially distance. To avoid hospitalization and death, you get fully vaccinated, and you're aware that if you are infected, you take the medications, whether it be antibodies or antivirals, to avoid going to the hospital. That's basically it. Now, some people are probably saying, and well, that's what they said uh, uh, with the previous uh, administration. Uh, we heard from Scott Atlas, just let it run loose. No, this is different. What's different about it is they were letting it run loose when we didn't have any treatment or vaccine thus relating that that's what we call mass suicide now when people make that choice at least they can avoid hospitalization and death so those are the decisions to make those are the individual decisions i personally want to avoid being infected again why because it impacts my life i can't go to work i don't go to work i don't get paid also more importantly, I can't be around my grandchildren. I have to quarantine. And that's another issue. If you get the COVID virus and you test positive, you have a responsibility to your community 
to quarantine for those five days. You don't say, well, maybe I could go to this party or maybe I could go to the movies. No. You quarantine. That's it. Minimum of five days or longer if you're still testing positive. So we have to keep that in mind if we're going to move forward in dealing with this virus. The other thing that I wanted to bring up um, is that children under the age of five will soon have a vaccine available. Now, again, we're not we're seeing a lot of parents who have been believing much of the disinformation that's been out there, not getting your children vaccinated. Huge mistake. We're expecting a low response because there are so many people believing that now. But it's important. You get your children vaccinated for all the other stuff, at least most people do. And this is going to be part of that. So, again, I want to protect my grandchildren, and they will be protected. They will get the vaccine. Again, I want them to avoid hospitalization and death. Really, the other thing we're reading about is now the United States has now lifted the COVID-19 test requirement for international travelers. So that means if you are an American and you're coming back to to the United States from a foreign country, you do not have to test first. You can get on a plane and come home. And it's the same as if you're leaving the country. To be honest with you, When you look at European countries, their rates of infection are much lower. They should be the one mandating that Americans get tested before they let us in their country. That would make more sense. So anyhow, um, we're lifting the requirement um, so that people who are stranded uh, and may have COVID and don't know it can get back in the United States. What does that mean for me and other people who want to avoid infection? When you're on the plane, put a mask on. Because you don't know if someone else there, now that they've not tested on an international flight, now that they've not tested, you don't know who has it, who may be sitting next to you sneezing. So please, everybody be careful. Try to get back to the basics, right? Masking when it's necessary. Washing hands, social distancing. That's how we're going to get out of this mess. We're going to take a short break, and then we're going to be back to talk about a couple of more topics that have been in the news. And then in the second half of our program, we're going to be chatting with Dr. Trang Lai from Insulate Corporation. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi. And uh, many of you who watch the news or get your news on the Internet have been alerted to the fact that uh, Justin Bieber had to cancel his concert tour uh, or at least postpone it because he has come down with a condition called Ramsey Hunt Syndrome. Uh, actually, he's he was scheduled to appear at the Mohegan Sun next week. Uh, so uh, I thought it was worthwhile to talk a little bit about Ramsey Hunt Syndrome because it's not as rare as you think. It is a complication of shingles or herpes zoster oticus. So we've all heard of shingles, right, where you develop that rash followed by 
um, weakness, paralysis, or pain. Um, and that's what happens here. What happens in Ramsey-Hunt syndrome, it affects the facial nerve right at the area of the ear. So it results in paralysis of one side of the face. And that paralysis means it affects the three branches of the facial nerve where you cannot furrow your brow, you cannot fully close your eye, and cannot smile on that side of your face. Much like a Bell's palsy, synonymous with it. The difference with this is that it's the result of a clear infection, and it also affects hearing and taste. So obviously, um, this is a problem for a performer. Uh, usually, you see it in people over the age of 60. That's why we now have a vaccine. So we're getting back to vaccines. If your child has had the chickenpox vaccine, which we didn't have with many of us who are older, Okay, but if they had the chickenpox vaccine, they didn't get the virus because this is a virus that lives in the dorsal root ganglion, part of the nervous system, and it just sits there dormant until it becomes activated. What activates it? Often uh, stress, uh, another type of infection may do it, cancer may do it. Any number of things can trigger that type of an infection. So it's reactivation of the same virus that causes the chickenpox. So that's why in people over the age of 50, we recommend getting the new herpes zoster vaccine. So you don't get this painful condition. I would have to assume that uh, Mr. Bieber was not vaccinated against chickenpox. Um, and it's important to vaccinate children. But again, even after it clears up, which could take weeks or months, there is a period of many people develop numbness or lack of sensation on that side of their face. And it gradually does get better. And we wish Mr. Bieber the best. I know he has a lot of fans and people were looking forward to his concert, uh, concerts that are coming up, and especially the one here in Connecticut. Um, but again, um, it's something we need to be mindful of um, related to viruses. We started a conversation last week about gun violence in the United States, and it's readily apparent to anybody um, who looks at statistics or just looks at life that we're heading in the wrong direction with respect to gun violence. And you can easily tell that because from 1994 to 2004, we had a ban on assault weapons. You couldn't buy an AR-15. And we have the most guns in this country of any other country per capita. In the United States, for every 100 people, we have 120 guns. If you compare us to France, for every 100 people, they have 20 guns. And it's the same throughout Europe. And I talked about that a little bit last week. Our number of firearms homicides, when compared to other high-income countries, we're 13 times greater than France. We're 23 times greater the number of firearm homicides than you see in Australia. But let's look at that period. So from 1994, so if we look at from 1990 to 1999, there were about 21 deaths per year due to a mass shooting. And a mass shooting is defined as an incident where more than four people are killed by gunfire not counting the shooter himself or herself. So more than four people 
killed by a firearm at a single incident. We had 21 total deaths per year from 1990 to 1999. If you look at the same period from 2012 to 2021, that figure is now up to 51 deaths per year. More than doubled. What changed? What changed is the legalization of selling an, an assault rifle. A gun designed for warfare. Not designed for hunting. Not designed for target shooting. Designed for only one purpose. Assault. So now we're looking at, all right, how do we reel this thing back in? Let's really drill down on the numbers. And I found out this week that there, in 1996... Our Congress, in their infinite wisdom, passed the Dickey Amendment. Get this. The Dickey Amendment prohibits the Centers for Disease Control, the group that collects data and tells us what we need to do as a public health group. This amendment prohibits them to conduct or even fund any research on gun violence if it's used to promote gun control. Are you kidding so we can't even find out from the CDC. We don't have a dashboard like we have for COVID. We have a monkeypox dashboard. We cannot go to the CDC to get our information. We, the taxpayers. Why would they pass an amendment like that? Obviously to protect gun makers and the National Rifle Association. Well, guess what? Times have changed. Time for the Dickey Amendment to go. So we get most of our research now from the Gun Violence Archive. And this is a private group that does tremendous work in researching this. But the question now becomes, who is most affected by this gun violence? And guess what? It's children. You know, the firearms are the leading cause of death in children under the age of 19. Okay? I mean... In 2020, there were 4,300 of these deaths. It went up by 30%, okay, in, in tw since 2019. It went up 30% over 2019. So in one year, we had a 30% increase in the number of children killed from firearms. If we're not protecting our children, who are we protecting as parents or as citizens? And maybe it's time for what's being called the Emmett Till moment. Emmett Till was the young man who was killed. He was murdered in Mississippi for whistling at a white woman. And he was severely beaten. And his mother had his body there in an open casket so everybody could see how badly beaten his face was. No one shows us the pictures of these children who were torn apart by assault rifles. And it's not for me to say they should. But maybe it's time some of those parents said, I want you to see those pictures. Maybe that's what will get us moving in the right direction. Maybe that's what will get our elected officials moving in the right direction. We're going to take a short break. Then we're going to be back with my guest, Dr. Trang Lai. And we're going to be talking about devices that can be used in managing diabetes. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC. 
News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and it gives me great pleasure um, to bring to you my guest today, Dr. Trang Lai. Dr. Lai is the Senior Vice President and Medical Director for Insulate Corporation. She's a pediatric endocrinologist by trade. Um, she trained at the University of Western Australia and then went to Stanford uh, and uh, it now went into industry. She is a well-known national leader in the development of devices for insulin delivery. This week she was speaking at the American Diabetes Association, and it gives me great pleasure to have her join us. Trang, welcome to the show. Hi, Tony. How are you? Good, good. So let's start with the basics for our listeners. What's the difference between type 1 diabetes and type 2 diabetes? Yeah, how I would describe it is that with type 1 diabetes, there is an uh, insulin deficiency so it's an autoimmune condition that affects people of all ages. Uh, it's a bit of a misnomer that it only affects children, but in fact, the majority of patients are actually diagnosed um, after the age of 18. And so, um, and that occurs because um, there is an autoimmune uh, reaction that happens. So for some reason, and we don't know exactly why, a person's own um, pancreatic cells are damaged and they can no longer produce insulin. So in type 1 diabetes, there's a complete insulin deficiency and we need to replace that insulin. Otherwise, uh, the patient is at risk of um, acute complications uh, such as uh, diabetic ketoacidosis. And, and what happens in that state is the person can be uh, severely dehydrated and can end up in the hospital. Um, with type 2 diabetes, it tends to be more of a gradual onset, and what happens in that case is the body um, doesn't respond to the insulin that is being produced um, very well. So initially, there's an insulin resistance, and then later on, um, again, there can also lead to insulin deficiency as well. So um, it is more of a protracted um, condition. Generally, um, people with type 2 diabetes are older and um, have other, can, can have other comorbidities. But more and more today, we're seeing people diagnosed with type 2 at a younger age as well. Is type 1 diabetes hereditary? Um, no. In fact, it's, um, it's not. So if, if you have a uh, parent with type 1 diabetes, the risk of your child getting it is about 5%. So that's about a 1 in 20 risk. But the vast majority of people who are diagnosed with type 1 are actually the first uh, people in their family to be diagnosed. Um, so certainly there are families where there is a higher incidence, but uh, the majority of people um, out there are actually the first in, in their families. What, it was interesting that you mentioned that most type 1 diabetics are not diagnosed until their teen years. Um, is that a disadvantage? Is it a condition where if it had been diagnosed earlier, um, it would be easier to control? Does it have any bearing on the fact that they were diagnosed late with type 1 diabetes? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, I, I think it's challenging at all ages, actually. Um, and the longer you have it, the longer 
you're at risk of that metabolic disruption. And so, you know, if you have uh, hyperglycemia and your body um, is used to the um, running higher uh, at a higher blood glucose level, what that hap- what happens is that your body is um, going to be at risk of those longer term complications for longer. So, you know, in the 90s, you know, there was data to show that if you had, um, if you were running a, a higher blood sugar and you the insulin wasn't quite matched for your glucose control, um, that would lead to complications. And so the longer duration of diabetes um, does impact uh, later complications. But, you know, what I've seen, um, I've cared for children diagnosed as early as, you know, six weeks of age with type 1 diabetes. Um, you know, perhaps now with other um, um advances in genetics, you know, maybe that is some type of genetic neonatal diabetes, but, you know, uh, it can be, um, it's pretty rare under um, 12 months of age, but it can be diagnosed that early. And then we see peaks at around the two to three-year-old age group, and then around eight or nine, there's also a bit of a peak there, and then also um, as teenagers as well. And I honestly, I don't think it's easy at any stage. You know, when you're younger, you, you do have parents taking care of you, um, and and that's great. But I actually think, you know, some of the most challenging cases I've seen is, you know, people who are diagnosed in their 20s and, you know, don't have, and they're away at college and they don't have a lot of um, family support around them to, to deal with um, the burden of this condition. And it's it's not something that, you know, we really recognize as a society as a, a burdensome condition. You know, what I say is, you know, when people are diagnosed with type 1, nobody sends them flowers, you know, but it is something that they're going to have for the rest of their lives and it will will change um, the trajectory of their lives. Trang, how did you make the diagnosis at six weeks? I mean, and I, and I guess, uh, let me put it this way, for young parents out there, how would you know in an infant what what did they bring them to you for what problem did they have that you're able to make a diagnosis of type one diabetes in a child that young? Yeah, so it's um, so they had um, uh, polyuria, polydipsia, which is you know they were uh, losing weight and peeing a lot. So you know um, as a pediatrician, you know it's pretty uh, easy to know when a child is not well because they don't grow and they don't um, gain okay. weight and that that is a sign of something that you look uh, have to look at really closely and so you know this child just wasn't putting on weight and was drinking a lot and um, you, you know to pick it um, you you know they're, they're not going to be able to tell you any symptoms so you're really looking at weight gain and um, and gen- general, you know, are they, how irritable are they, you know, are they able to be settled, all of those things. So at six weeks of age, it's a pretty tough diagnosis, but if failure to gain weight is a pretty um, straightforward symptom that, you know, sign that something's wrong. And so um, you can check for diabetes through a um, blood panel and glucose, uh, will be high in this situation. And so the glucose was high 
and um, the child was subsequently diagnosed with diabetes and we sent it off for genetics and there was no there was no obvious uh, neonatal diabetes um, and this child needed to be put on insulin and so with insulin the um, what that allows um, the cells to do is to better utilize the glucose that is around the so insulin sort of unlocks the cells to allow glucose to go in and um, for it to be better utilized and then the child you know started to gain weight with that and um, started to thrive again and and part of it was is a sort of a diagnosis of exclusion as well um, because it is quite rare to be diagnosed at that young age well, well let's move on to the next topic because i think you've moved on already is the treatment of diabetes and we're here about all the different things there are so many ads on TV about injectables of different types. You mentioned insulin, which is uh, really the uh, backbone of treatment of diabetes and has been for many, many years. Um, can you talk a little bit about some of the approaches to treating diabetes? Yes, uh, certainly. So with um Type 1 diabetes, it is an insulin deficiency. And so people really need um, insulin, which is a life-saving medication. Um, you know, in the, uh, more than 100 years ago, you know, insulin wasn't um, found yet. And people used to die when they were diagnosed because um, insulin just wasn't available for therapy. And so for patients with type 1 diabetes and many patients with type 2, insulin, uh, insulin therapy uh, allows replacement of a critical hormone um, and allows them to um, you know, better utilize the, the glucose that is around and allows for metabolic homeostasis. Uh, and so it, for, you know, for type 1 diabetes, the autoimmune condition, it is... Uh, essential therapy so it, it's just not something that they could go with for 24 hours without insulin therapy so it is critical treatment and um, insulin can be delivered by um, several mechanisms um, most people know it as an injectable medication so it can't be taken orally because um, the body will break it down too quickly and it can't get into the right cells so it needs to be delivered by injection and so um, children adults at first diagnosis generally everybody is taught how to give an insulin injection and um, they may need to have uh, four or five injections a day to um, essentially emulate pancreatic function um, so you need a little bit of insulin all the, the time uh, what we call basal insulin and then you also need to give insulin for meals as well um, and so most people eat, you know, three or four times a day and you would need insulin to cover that. And so it is, you know, incredibly burdensome for an, a family that's newly diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. And then, you know, adults with type 2, there's a lot of medications out there um, that have also really great cardiovascular and um, kidney uh, protective effects that um, we're starting um, to see utilized as first-line therapy. And generally, insulin is something that is started later on when there are signs that, um, you know, despite all the medications, there is persistent high glucose levels or high sugar levels. Um, and so 
with that, generally people have started on a once-a-day injection, but um, in many cases they are needing to require, again, four to five injections a day. So it is very intense therapy. And, and what people, you know, what's really challenging is it's one of the very few medications that we give people and send them home with that if you give too much of it, it can be very, very dangerous. So if you take too much sure. insulin, you're at risk of low blood sugars. And um, and how that can manifest is uh, you can um, have cognitive impairment. So you can um, just, um, you know, be very confused and um, feel shaky and sweaty. And you can actually lose consciousness if your blood sugar is really low because you have too much insulin in your in your system. And so, um, you know, you too much insulin can cause hypoglycemia and then um, not enough insulin can cause hyperglycemia, which is high blood sugar levels. And that also has complications as well. And you can, you know, feel irritable, um, thirsty, uh, agitated, tired, all of those things. And, and these, and, and so, you know, getting that, dose of insulin just right, getting the dose of medications just right is, is very challenging for many people living with diabetes. One of the things I guess we know now about diabetes, and it stands to reason, is uh, you want to try and keep people's blood sugar constant, not have these tremendous rises and dips as the day goes on. I don't even know if it's still used, but we used to use long-acting NPH insulin to try to make it easier by using it once a day and then kind of patching it together. But it's become obvious that the the more times you can test and give insulin, the more you'll stay, as we say, euglycemic. Uh, and, and I guess that's what has prompted uh, the next generation of devices. Can you talk a little bit about devices and uh, for insulin delivery and how they are used to keep people's blood sugars the same throughout the day? Yes. Uh, so, you know, we talked about pens briefly and, and that involves, you know, a person having to um, inject themselves with a needle. And so there are other devices such as um, insulin pumps, which can deliver a small amount of insulin um, 24-7 continuously and how an insulin pump works is um, you either have um, it, it's basically well with the, with our um, with the Omnipod which is the insulin pump that is a tubeless insulin delivery system made by Insulet um, in that system there is a cannula so how I describe it is like it's a very tiny straw that is inserted under the skin and the straw stays under the skin and the needle is inside the straw. So what it does is when you put it on your body, the needle fires into the skin and then retracts and stays inside the pod. But what's left is that plastic straw. And then um, you can program these pumps to deliver um, however much insulin you want. And so normally there is a small amount of insulin that is delivered all the time. And then when you're about to have a meal, you can um, give more, more insulin um, before meals to match uh, the amount that you need uh, to keep your glucose levels in range. 
for many years, actually, insulin pumps have been around for, for many years, even in the early 80s, there were um, systems used. Actually, you know, some of the very first pumps were used in at Yale University um, with uh, Professor Bill Tamberlane. And so, you know, they've been around for a long time. And I would say, you know, more um, utilized in the last 20 years. Um, definitely they've become, you know, much more user-friendly, um, much smaller, and the dosing of um, insulin has been, you know, just um, very accurate as well. And so, you know, this diabetes space that has moved so fast, um, Tony, I mean, I hate to tell you, but, you know, um, MPH is not first-line therapy anymore. <laughs> um, <laughs> so it's a super fast-moving um, space, and, you know, that... It's just really incredible seeing the advances um, for, you know, for children and adults diagnosed. So, um, you know, in addition to insulin pumps, the other thing that has really advanced is continuous glucose monitoring. And That's so, what I wanted to get you know, to because, right. So, yeah. And that was my question. Yeah, Does so, the pump monitor the blood sugar? Right. So the, the glucose monitor, these sensors, and you would have seen from ads, you know, Dexcom, Abbott, Libre, you know, these are really fantastic sensors that continuously measure glucose levels and can tell you on a phone app, you know, what your current glucose is. And, uh, you know, not that long ago, five, ten years ago, you know, newly diagnosed people were all given um, a BG meter, a blood glucose meter to prick their fingers, you know, four or five times a day to check their blood glucose. And now, you know, when people hear of that, they're like, gosh, that's really barbaric therapy. Um, is what one family said, um, you know, because the the technology has just advanced so much, you know, we get really accurate uh, glucose sensing from, from these devices. And so with, with the advent of the sensors really becoming accurate, you know, it then led to technology that is now dosing insulin delivery based upon the these accurate sensors coming through. And so... Um, just a few years ago, um, you know, the FDA cleared the very first uh, automated insulin delivery system, and um, that was with a, a pump that was um, a tubed pump, what we call um, a tubed pump, and that's connected to people's bodies by two to three feet of plastic tubing. Right. And, um, you know, with the, some of the first-generation sensors, and, you know, these are really great advances, but I would say, you know, some of the first generation sensors were not as accurate as they are now. And so what we're seeing more and more is more and more people are using it because they're so accurate and um, they lead to better outcomes and, and people, uh, you know, really rely on this, this technology to keep themselves alive. And so... Um, you know, I um, joined Insulet six years ago to to build um, and lead the clinical program for uh, a system that was was to be the first tubeless automated insulin delivery system. So, um, you know, I described the pod briefly, and what we have now is an algorithm inside the pod that talks wirelessly to a continuous glucose sensor and um, adjust insulin every five minutes in response to those glucose levels to keep people in range. And, you know, it's just extraordinary technology. 
and um, you know we have um, you know our first um, uh, group of patients using it this year, and we're really starting to get uh, feedback from from them regarding you know just how life changing this technology has been for them, and it's been really remarkable. Trang, I want to thank you. Thank you for your time today. Um, this has been a tremendous amount of information for our listeners and really uh, for me uh, in, in learning more about this Omnipod system. I, I suggest to people who want to get more information about the Omnipod, um, just go to insulate.com. Um, it's a great website, and you'll get plenty of information. Trang, thank you very much for your time today. Thanks, Tony. All right. Have a great Thank you, Zane, to you. We're going to take a short break. Then I'm going to be back to wrap it all up. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds and just wanted to wrap up um, today's show. I want to thank Dr. Trang Lai uh, for spending time with us. And, again, if you want to get more information, go to insulate.com. Next week we're going to be chatting um, with one of our local trauma surgeons, we're going to learn more about these gunshot wounds and, and really start to talk about what we can do to protect ourselves um, when these injuries occur. Many thanks to our studio producer today. Joey Burgoyne has been kind enough to come in and be on the board. And he, uh, Jeff Chandler is in charge of sales and marketing for Healthy Rounds. If you missed any part of today's program or any others, you can get them on the Healthy Rounds podcast. You can download it on iTunes or at odyssey.com. Next, on, uh, next up on WTIC is going to be Law Talk with Attorney John Matulis. Until next week, this is Dr. Anthony Alessi. Please stay healthy. This has been Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi. Sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and Yukon Health Orthopedics and Sports Medicine. Be sure to tune in next Saturday morning at 11 for more Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com.